Well, we're switching it up a little bit this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to uh, have our sermon. We're going to uh, hear from God's Word, and then we are going to observe the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to continue our study. And so I want to begin with, with a quote. And it's this, at the very heart of our Christian faith is a precious red substance, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. In regard to this quote, Pastor Tony Carter says this, to read the Bible with any seriousness and sober discernment is to see that the shedding of blood or the implications of it is on practically every page. If the history of redemption is a story told in pictures, the blood of Christ is the paint with which that story is told. The blood of Christ is at the very heart of our Christian faith. And our churches have been filled for decades and decades and decades with wonderful, theologically deep, incredibly encouraging faith-anchoring hymns, lyrics, many of which are centered upon this precious red substance, the blood. We sang one this morning. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you've been around this church for any length of time and gotten to know me a little bit, you, you probably know that I love hymns. I love the hymns of our faith. And so I just, as I was typing out this introduction, I just thought, okay, what are some hymns that I know? And so let me just read some of these. I'm not going to sing them, but let me read them. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount. We're talking about a fount of blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I'm tempted, every time I start, I'm tempted to just to sing these, but I'm not, I'll spare you. There is a fountain fountain filled with blood drawn from where? From Emmanuel's veins. And who sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. I just one more. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. That, that's a lot of blood. That's a lot of blood. And all those hymns, all the great hymn writers of the church, they, they get that idea not because they're, they're these brutal or sadistic people. It's because blood is a central theme of the entire storyline of the Bible. And because of the death of Christ and the blood that he has shed, because that is the foundation of the Christian faith, we sing about blood and we rejoice in blood. 
And it can be no other way, or we lose the gospel. If, if Jesus doesn't die, if his blood isn't shed, we, we don't have a Christian faith. And so the, the sermon this week is titled, The Blood of the New Covenant, Part 1. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, and we're going to begin a focus on the blood of Jesus, the New Covenant, which is fitting that we are observing the Lord's Supper this morning. But as we turn here to the second half of Hebrews 9, as we cover these next verses through the end of chapter 9, we are going to see the author focusing on the blood of Jesus, the blood that was shed, and specifically how that blood has, has initiated a new covenant. And this blood that brings about this new covenant is far superior to anything that came before and anything that will ever come after. And so last week, we saw in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9, the inadequacies of the old covenant. And so we just looked at a bunch of regulations, and we saw that these regulations were, were limited, they were inadequate, and they could never provide what the people needed most. And so even though there are lots of regulations, they failed to open access to God. There's only one priest one, in one place one time a year. Right? So, so the holy place wasn't open. Access to God wasn't open under the old. But that wasn't the only limitation. There's also a, a lack of, of cleansing. The, the regulations couldn't fully cleanse the people. Old covenant regulations couldn't perfect the conscience of those who drew near to God. It only dealt with external issues. Issues of uncleanliness and ritual washings. These regulations couldn't truly cleanse. And the author sets the stage there so that as he comes to, to the second half of chapter 9, he can say, but the blood has come. The new covenant is here. And all these limitations have now been overcome. It's the new covenant. And so let me read our passage. We're only going to look at, at four verses. Verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews 9. Uh, and so we're going to look at those. Look at... We'll work through those. There's only two, two uh, sections for outline. Um, but let me read them first. Um, and lis- listen to the blood here in just these few verses. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so we'll see in verses 11 and 12, the first point of our outline is, is the, the new covenant brings about access to God. The, the way to God is opened by the blood of this new covenant. And then second, verses 13 through 14, we'll see the true cleansing has now been accomplished or, or enabled by the blood of the new covenant. And so those are the two outlines. Let me, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll look there at verses 11 through 12 first. But let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things written in your law. Would you incline our hearts to the testimonies of your word? Would you awaken our hearts to to love Christ, to sing of his mercy, to proclaim his excellencies? And Lord, as we observe the Lord's Supper shortly, I, I pray that our faith would be strengthened and that our love, our love and desire to, to worship Christ and to, to long for his return would, would just be magnified because one day he's coming and, and, and we want 
him to come for us. We are eagerly awaiting that. And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, first, verses 11 and 12, we see access to God. So look there at verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. So verse 11, look how it begins. There, there's a word there, and, and, and really, I looked through three, four of transla- the, the common English translations, and they all had, they, they began with the word but. So they all, all start there, verse 11, with but. But, but when Christ appeared, or but when Christ came, but when Christ. And that word but in verse uh, 11 of chapter 9, it connects this entire section back to what was said before. And so if you, if you just go all the way back up to verse 1 of chapter 9, so you may have to flip the page, but in, in 9 verse 1, chapter 9 begins, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Okay, so, so even... The first covenant had regulations in a place of holiness. And then the, the next 10 verses are, are listing those regulations. And he's contrasting these, these first covenant regulations with the old, or, or the, of the old with the new. And so under these old regulations, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way through 10, here's what was under the old. But, verse 11, when Christ appeared... But now, under the new covenant that's now come, now that Christ has appeared, right? that's the flow of verse 11. So, so 1 through 10, are, are, it once was this way, but now it's a new way. There's a contrast. So verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he associates this appearing of Christ with the dawning of a new covenant. And he appeared, Christ appeared, notice, as the high priest of the good things that have come. Something has happened. This, this great covenantal change that the author's been focusing on in these prior chapters, it's come. A new era has arrived in the high priesthood of Christ. He's come and he's brought with him the new covenant changes, alterations. It, the time of reformation that was mentioned in verse 10 has come now in the appearing of Christ, the high priest of, of the new covenant. So Christ appears as high priest. No son of Aaron stands before us, but Christ, the truly anointed one, the one commissioned of the Lord to introduce people to to their God, the Lord Jesus appears in the end of the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's the high priest. He's here, and with his appearance comes the new covenant. This is the high priest of the good things that have come, the high priest of the new covenant. Not like Aaron, not like his sons, not like the Levites, but the high priest of a different order. And when Christ appeared, notice what he did, or more specifically, look where he went. There, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not not in this world, but, but the perfect tent, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so that's where he goes. There's a lot to unpack there. But first, remember last week when we saw the Old Covenant regulations, there were, there were two sections. There's the holy place and the most holy place. And those were the regulations for the tent, for the tabernacle, for the temple. And even there, even though the, the Holy of Holies was a unique place where, where God's presence uniquely dwelt among his people, that place under the Old Covenant was a place where only one priest could go only once a year. Well, now he says, the author, now the new high priest has done something far greater than any other high priest could ever dream of doing. He's, he's entered into the most holy places and he's not leaving. 
He entered into the most holy place, into the real, greater, more perfect tent, which is to say that he entered into the reality of what the earthly holy of holies represented. In other words, the point isn't simply to say that the design of the tent on earth was, was, uh, was a plane designed after some sort of heavenly tent. I don't think that is, that's his point there. Instead, his point, I think, is simply that Christ has entered once for all into the true, actual, heavenly presence of God. I mean, think about it. What did the Holy of Holies in the tent or the tabernacle or the, tent, or the temple, what did it represent? Right? They all had these special regulations for this sacred area that represented God's presence with his people. And the Holy of Holies was there because God's presence dwelt there uniquely. And in order for God to dwell among his people, there had to be provisions, regulations. That was the whole point of last week. A holy God cannot dwell among unholy people without provisions. Thus, the, the priestly service and the priestly sacrifices. But, but where Jesus has gone now is into the very presence of God, in which there's no need for a separation between a holy and a most. It's not like in heaven there's, oh, here's the holy place, but the most. It's all the holy of holies because it's where God dwells. And so Jesus has entered in, in his new covenant ministry, into the actual full presence of God. It's where Christ has gone. In the new, there's no need for a heavenly holy place since Christ brings his people into the very presence of God. It's like we get up into heaven and then we have to wait outside at the, the holy place and, until we, our priest goes into the holy No, he is in the presence of God and with him we too can go. He's entered into the very presence of God. It's not a place made with human hands. It's not an earthly place. It's, it's the holy place, all caps. And he's entered into God's very presence on behalf of his people. If, if you look down, um, we'll get there in, in several weeks, but verse, verse 24 of, of, of chapter 9 says the same thing. Verse 24, notice, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's where he's gone. And notice in, in verse 12, he's entered into the true holy place, into the very presence of God. He's done so, verse 12, once for all. He's entered into the holy place once for all. That, that's a big difference. One time, one sacrifice, one shedding of blood. The high priest, this high priest of the new covenant has, has entered into the true holy of holies once for all, which means he doesn't offer sacrifices and then leave until the next time a sacrifice is needed. He entered once and for all. And notice how he entered. Look how verse 12 continues. He entered once for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. That's another big difference, the contrast between old and new. Once for all, yes, but by a different type of blood, not the blood of the old covenant, not the blood required under the old. It's, it's a different blood. It's actually not even the blood of animals. It's the blood of a person. It's not just the blood of any person. It's the blood of the eternal son who took on flesh so that he could shed his blood. I mean, just, just stop and think about that. Under the old, we're in the old covenant, the priest would sacrifice an animal, then you'd present the blood in the holy of holies. The priest would offer blood of another, right? Whether it's a, a goat or a calf, blood was offered for the priest's sins and then for the sins of his family, and then he'd offer blood for the, the sins of the people that he represented. So, so there's, there's blood everywhere under this old covenant, and the blood would be a means of access for that high priest. Blood was required for entrance. So he had, he, had to, he had to make the sacrifice and he had to take the blood into the Holy of Holies. 
That that is what was required for entrance because death was required. Payment was necessary and the blood was shed because life was taken. It was symbolic. When you have blood, it means life was taken from something. And the cost was death. That the penalty of sin, it was, it was sacrifice. And the entire Old Covenant was set up in such a way that year after year after year after year, that sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, all of this was a regular reminder that, that, that couldn't have been missed, which was without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. If you want your priest to represent you before me, he better bring blood with him. Because without that, he's not getting in. He's dying in there. And so that's the the entire old. It's true in the the new also. There's there's blood, lots of blood, but the blood of the old, the impossible to miss, even this this blood-covered old covenant, this blood was was kind of cheap. I mean, the the goats and the bulls wouldn't say that, but but we say that. If you couldn't afford goats or calves, there are provisions. You you could buy a bird or or some cheaper animal. You could even not even bring it with you, and you could buy it outside the temple and take it in. It was kind of cheap. You, you You could get it on discount. But the blood of the new... Notice, notice what verse 12 says about the blood of the new. Notice whose blood it is. Christ has entered, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. It's his own blood, the blood of the Son. This isn't cheap. This isn't cheap blood. It's not just, it isn't just an animal. It's human sacrifice. It's a human blood, and it's the blood of the Son, which means, and here's the remarkable thing, not only does this great high priest of the new covenant offer blood to gain access into the most holy place, but he offers his own blood. I mean, think about that. He offers his own blood. This great high priest sacrifices himself, which means he's both the high priest and the sacrifice. What a difference. So under the old, it's a priest offers an animal. But here, the priest offers himself. It's his own blood that gives entrance into this holy of holies. I mean, the high priest of old were killed when they failed to keep the regulations related to entering the holy of holies. The high priest of the new was killed in order to secure entrance forever into the Holy of Holies. There really can be no doubt that this is a greater place of sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, and is a greater means of access into God's very presence. And then notice the last contrast mentioned there in verse 12. Notice what the end result is here. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption eternal redemption as opposed to annual redemption. Under the the old, the day of atonement would come once a year. Now, don't get me wrong. This this was a gracious provision from God for the people, but every year had to be done again and again and again. But this high priest, the high priest of the new Christ, our great high priest, his sacrifice has secured eternal redemption. You see, when the high priest of the old would sacrifice the animals and, and sprinkle their blood, it was symbolic. He represented... This blood represented the death of the people. These animals were sacrificed in the place of the people as a substitute for the people. The the animals paid the price. Well, Jesus has entered by way of a far superior sacrifice. He offered his own blood. He surrendered his own life in death for the sake of his people. And it's precisely because of the nature of his person and the very nature of his sacrifice that he has secured eternal redemption. The new covenant means no more high priests. 
It means no more sacrifices. No more need for any of that because eternal redemption has come. This is what Christ has accomplished. And I mean, the point here is that redemption, the word redemption, it could be translated liberated or delivered. Right? The implication is, is that we, the people, were enslaved or captured or, or held captive by something. And the redemption, the, the deliverance that's come by way of Christ, liberation is from sin and its penalty. We've been redeemed. Redemption, eternal redemption has been secured. This is what the death of Christ redeems us from. The price has been paid with his own life. And so just by way of application, if you're here and not a Christian, you just need to know that, that if you have not put your faith in Jesus, if you've not come to God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, you are still enslaved to sin. You're still a son or daughter of Satan, captive to his will, captive to sin, enslaved to desire. That's, that's how you were born. And apart from, from the, the redemption that comes through Jesus, that's where you will die. But the good news is eternal redemption has been secured by the death of a great high priest who gave his life for you. And so if you're hearing that a Christian, I would urge you, put your faith in Jesus. Come to God through him. Access to God has been opened by him and him alone. You don't get to God any other way. And so I, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service about what that means, or, or later this week, Will or I, or, or there are lots of people here who'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have access, fellowship with God. But you ought to know that you can't have that apart from the work of Jesus on your behalf, applied to you through faith in him. But also, Christian, because he died once, because he's never going to die again, because he offered himself once for all, the nature of our redemption is eternal. It's eternal. Do you know how long that is? It's eternal. Through the blood of the new covenant, the believer has eternal security because redemption's price has been paid. No other cost needed. No, no interest rate. No hidden cost. No fine print. In Christ, the death of the great high priest, your sins have been paid for. You may ask, well, what sins? That's an important question to know the answer to. What sins have been paid for? What was it just those that, that you committed before you put your faith in him? Yes, it was, but it wasn't just those. Eternal redemption means that all your sins, past, present, future, have been paid for. Jesus is never dying again. He died once and for all. The work of Christ is final, absolute, definitive, complete, and perfect. It lacks nothing. There's no sin that is not covered by the blood. This is the, the good news of the new covenant. This also means for the purposes of, of thinking about the people first reading this letter, there's no further need for them to, to go back to the old covenant, to, to go back to the priest to make additional sacrifices or, or to, to have a priest represent them on the day of atonement. The sacrifice of Christ is enough and there's no need to go back. The old is no longer needed. Why in the world would you want to go back? to the limited, insufficient, inadequate priests and sacrifices, when you can come to Christ, access has been opened. Well, let's look quickly now at the, the last section, the true cleansing. And so, so he shows that, that, that the way to God ha has been opened in this new covenant, that there's a better way that wasn't available under the first. And the second 
improvement or second benefit is that true cleansing now is available through the new covenant work, the blood that Christ has shed. So look there at verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls, right? So, so, so he's continuing this contrast, but, but this contrast now, notice he, he's saying there in verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, we'll say something about that in a second, but if, the, if these things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, he's going to make a, a comparison, but he makes an assumption just in that first section of verse 13, if or since the blood of goats worked and it's sanctified for the purification of the flesh, right? His point is that his assumption that those things actually accomplished something. They actually worked, right? This is part of the regulations of the old. That the blood of boats, goats and bulls, the ashes of heifers, they were required and they did purify. They did cleanse. There was a ceremonial external surface level cleaning that came through that. And so, so he's going to compare. He's going to say, these were, these were effective. How much more is this going to be effective? He's going to continue the comparison. And if you want to, I won't talk much about the, the blood of bulls and goats. You can write down Leviticus 16. That, that's where you see the Day of Atonement that, that would happen once a year. And, and in this Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, there's a, uh, the, the commands to sacrifice a bull and then to sacrifice two goats then to take the, the blood of the bull and enter the Holy of Holies and then to take the blood of the goats and, or one of the goats to go in the Holy of Holies. And, and so the, this is the blood of bulls and goats that he's talking about. It's the Day of Atonement, which has been in the background the, the last couple chapters. But Levitic, Leviticus 16.30 says, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It actually happened. There was a cleansing that happened under the old. And there were regulations. But the blood of goats and bulls were necessary. It was required under the old. Now, it's, it's weird that he throws in the, the ashes of a heifer. Maybe you're like, well, what, did, what in the world is that about? But, but write down Leviticus chapter 19, because Leviticus chapter 19, the entire, entire chapter, gives very specific regulations regarding these ashes of a heifer. And the long, long story short is basically get a red heifer, which is, as best as I can tell, just a female cow. And this heifer was to be burned as an offering. And then the ashes of this heifer were to be collected and then mixed with cedarwood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and make this, this little agent, this mixture that would then be combined with water. And so this was a purifying agent, and the blood of, or the ashes of the heifer were required. It's this cleansing agent. If you read through Leviticus 19, after describing how to make this mixture, and all the the cleansing of who's going to collect the ashes, and who's going to do this, he he goes through situation after situation where someone becomes unclean or defiled, and the solution for for them to become cleansed is to to be sprinkled with the water that's been made by the ashes of the heifer. And so again, the point, it's, it's fascinating. Maybe you think it's really weird, but the point is that the, the ashes of the heifer were similarly viewed as, as that of the, the blood, and, blood of the bulls and the goats. It, it was a means of cleansing, a ritual ceremony cleansing for those who had sinned or become defied. And under the old, there was a real cleansing. That's, that's his point. Under the old, blood cleanses from ritual defilement, but it, but it was surface level. It was effective. It, it enabled the people to remain in regular fellowship uh, with God, but, but also in the community. They didn't have to quarantine themselves, but they were purified. They were cleansed. 
But, but that cleansing, right, it, only, it, it only worked, it only lasted until they weren't clean anymore, until they do something that, that made them unclean, or maybe they touch something or fail to abide by some regulation, and then once again they'd be defiled. And so, so there, was, there was an effectiveness from the cleansing that came from the blood of goats, goats and the regulations of the old, but it was always temporary. After being cleansed, there would inevitably come a time when sacrifices would have to be offered again, which makes the point loud and clear that under the old, they were never truly or completely cleansed. It's like the kid who has to bathe every day. He doesn't stay clean. The cleansing power of the blood of goats and bulls was minimal. It did provide cleansing, but it was temporary and incomplete. But back to verse 13, that's his point. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more? That's his argument. Do you see how much more? If, if earthly animal sacrifices were somewhat effective, how much more, he continues, will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This blood, the blood that's established the new covenant, the shedding of the blood of Christ and the death of the son, the the giving up of his own life will surely purify the conscience of the worshiper more completely, more thoroughly than that of the old covenant blood. Jesus offered himself. Notice the, the reasons why the sacrifice disappeared. Jesus offered himself. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself. No one took the life of Jesus. He freely laid it down. He freely gave it up. He freely sacrificed himself. Jesus offered himself. He offered himself through the eternal spirit, which is almost certainly a reference to the Holy Spirit, not just a a, a mention of his human spirit, but the Holy Spirit, who is the very one, if you remember the beginning of, of the ministry of Jesus, who anointed Jesus for his work in ministry. And his work, his mission, certainly included his sacrifice, the death on the cross. And the reason that the eternal spirit is mentioned here is because the death of Christ must be seen as part of the overarching eternal plan of the triune God. It wasn't an accident. The spirit himself was active, playing a part in this salvation, the death of Jesus that that established this new covenant. It's not this afterthought. It's not an accident. It was a result of the unique activity of the divine persons, each person playing a part. The Father appoints the Son. The Father is the one who says, you are a high priest. You're qualified. You are the high priest who lays down his life. The Son lays down his life, obedient to the will of the Father, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, who then sends the Spirit who anoints the Son for this ministry. The new covenant, our very salvation, cannot be understood apart from the triunity of the one true God. Father, Son, Spirit, active in securing this eternal redemption. And so he offered himself. He offered himself through the eternal spirit. But notice also he offered himself without blemish. Again, a reference to the old covenant, that the animal sacrifices were to be perfect without spot or blemish. Whereas these animals, they were to be physically without spot or blemish. I mean, they couldn't have these defects. You couldn't just take the the three-legged goat and sacrifice. They needed to be perfect, spotless. Well, the new covenant sacrifice, the lamb who was slain, was without blemish. But it's not physical blemish. It's moral blemish. This is the perfect one. No sin at all. The sinless one offered himself. No spot. 
in spite of rebellion or disobedience or trans, transgression, the son, the spotless son, offered himself. He was perfect. And the concluding point of verse 14 is how much more will his sacrifice, how much more will his blood affect cleansing that goes deeper than the cleansing that came through lesser blood and sacrifices? So this sacrifice was not limited in any way, but instead, closes verse 14, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the result. That these are the benefits of Christ's offering, a cleansed conscience. This is a cleansing that goes much deeper than what came under the old. It's not just a cleansing from external defilement. It's a cleansing that gets deep down into the pores of the heart. It's an internal, thorough cleansing. And it's a cleansing, he says, that frees us to serve the living God. A cleansing that, that doesn't permit fear of being rejected or defiled or unholy again. And so, so after the day of atonement, you, you go away thinking, okay, let's see how long I can last this time. Or, or let's see how long I can stay clean. I hope I, hope I make it. Or, or else we're going to have to give another goat. Or, or we're going to have to go to see the priest again. In the new covenant, there's no fear of that. There's no fear of rejection or defilement or ever being unholy ever again. For those who come to God through Christ, there's an effective, permanent cleansing that can't be undone. Those who have purified consciences are cleansed and thus liberated to serve the living God. They're they're not saddled with guilt, but purified from it. And thus, they can live in confidence and joy before God and serve him gladly. The, the cleansing of the conscience leads to a decisive change in a person's heart with respect to God. Access to God is open. We, we are welcomed. We're enabled to serve God and live lives of sacrifice for him. Our act of service now, we, we become the high priest that, that sacrifice ourselves. We follow the, the, the example set by our great high priest and we give ourselves for him. One commentator put it this way, Christ cleansing has set us free to serve the living God in the way that Jeremiah envisaged. If you remember, we, we, several chapters ago, the, the new covenant, the superior new covenant, Jeremiah 33 verse 8, old covenant, the Lord's saying, talking about a, a new day coming, which, which has now come in Christ, he says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. That's the old covenant promising the new, and the new has come, and Christ has sacrificed himself, and the cleansing has come so that we can can now know God and be in fellowship with God and be truly cleansed. The cleansing has come. We are cleansed once for all, the recipients of eternal redemption. We're freed to serve the living God, and that service, that life of service does not, in fact, it must not involve offering over and over lesser ineffective sacrifices. Christ's cleansing was once for all and can never be improved upon. It is the blood of the new covenant. He is the high priest of the better things that have come and are now here. Let me pray for us and then we will we'll transition to uh, the feast that awaits us. Let's pray.